0: Hi, it's me, Kanisoka and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Say what? You you didn't invite me? That's okay. That's okay. I'm still happy to be here. It's all good. I've got so much to tell you. So firstly, I'm a comedian and an improviser. And secondly, I'm on a mission with Bumble to find out if romance is dead. That's right. I decided to set upon a journey, digging through the trenches, pulling apart the heartache, eating lots of chocolate, singing love songs at the top of my lungs, and even though this is what my usual Saturday night is. On this quest, I will also be talking to musicians, filmmakers, bakers, wedding planners, psychologists, writers, and more, to truly understand what creates that spark. What is romance? What does it all mean? And will love find a way? Sorry, excuse me, can I get a cup of chai? Some chai and biscuits, yeah. (laughs) My name Kaniz. Kaniz Surka, the full name. Yeah, Chai. Two sugar, Thank you. I don't know what it was, but we just clicked, you know. She said the sweetest thing the other day. Totally made my heart melt.
1: If I don't get a reply in 30 seconds, I start getting anxious. I think I like her, but I don't know how to
2: tell her.
0: We've all heard some version of this from our friends, on TV, or sometimes we've been the person saying those exact words. Texting your bestie late at night, trying to decipher a winky emoji, wondering, is this a sign? You can be the most practical, smart, totally in control person in every aspect of your life. But somehow, being in love makes us all feel completely out of sorts. When you see your crush, you feel like you're falling, your heart is pounding, your stomach has butterflies. And where the hell are those violins coming from? Why are they playing in the background of my life like a soundtrack? I mean, you have no control over it. So in this episode, I wanted to explore the biological and psychological aspects of romance. How does it affect our mind, our body, our heart? So I spoke to neurologist Dr. Siddharth Warrior, clinical psychologist Dr. Amrita Narayanan, and agony aunt Cyrus Brocha. To begin, where else must we go but straight to the heart? For many of us out there who need someone to talk to about matters of the heart, we usually turn to the late-night RJ, the TV host, or the agony aunt in our mom's magazine. Clearly, I was born in the 80s which is why I spoke to a comedian who's been an agony aunt for the Hindustan Times for over eight years and you might remember him from MTV Loveline in the late 90s. I'm talking about Cyrus Brocher, who's helping me understand what's troubling young Indian hearts today. What are some of the most common types of questions you receive?
1: Well, the most common is, how do I get her to like me? I mean, really? How can you answer that? okay, go, why don't you win Wimbledon three times or discover a cure for COVID virus or become the president of, you know, uh, uh, Rwanda and heal that. But, but for, you know, because there's no, well, the guy has to understand his very concept the, the way of love. The basic concept of love is basically you like someone, they like you and you just be yourself because there's no other way to do it. But at the end of the day, if you're not yourself, uh, you, you'll be seen through, right? Can you just find what's nice about yourself and, you know, try to project that as much as you can?
0: The fact that People are asking that question, it's it's almost like, they're not prepared to do the work. (laughs) Like, like do the work. Don't ask, how can I get it to like
1: me? Yeah, uh, do the work and also, what do you think? There's some magic pill. Everybody wants a shortcut and some cheat, you know, like the exam, give me the paper before. I mean, uh, would we all be super successful if there really was that for anything?
0: Yep, everyone wishes finding love was easier. Like, why can't we be born with a simple list-based plan of action for our relationships? Why do we have to deal with all the insecurity, anxiety, not to mention all the physical symptoms of your heart racing, nausea, headache? Oh my God, I need to lie down. So what exactly is going on in our body when we're in love? I turned to Dr. Siddharth Waria, who looks at things like learning, music, depression, and religion. All from the perspective of neuroscience. Basically, what does romance do to our body?
2: Oh, it's it's like um, getting it's like getting caught up in a whirlwind. Uh, there is no other way to ex- describe it, especially the first time when you are not prepared for it. It can actually resemble an obsessive-compulsive state where you can't stop thinking about something and you have to keep doing something again and again, just to satisfy some sort of really primal craving inside you. And if even one day goes by where you don't meet that person or talk to that person, there's your mind is going like something is wrong. Just correct it already. This is obsessive compulsive behavior. And uh, there's also some amount of addiction where as soon as you get that dose as soon as he or she picks up the phone and says hi, as soon as you meet that person, it's as if something is just clicked into place. Something is, now everything is all right with the world. So you get that sense of completion, which is how addicts behave when they get that kick. And as long as they don't get it, there's always that sense of something missing. And it's really crazy how we talk about romance and that early, early love in such terms. And obviously addiction and OCD are big problems and love is, on the other extreme, love is celebrated as a wonderful thing. So it goes to show that everything is perspective. You put it in the right construct and everything is allowed.
0: How does one recognize these signs in your body and mind? Like What what are some of the actual physical things that happen to your body when you are in that mode, when you are in love, when you are feeling romanticly towards somebody?
2: So evolution, it needs you to take a couple of things really seriously. One is your own survival. So if you're not getting food, you will try and get food. If you're not getting your basic safety in place, you will go and do that. And that doesn't require anybody else. You don't need to identify anyone else. But in order to procreate, in order to have kids, you need, you need someone else. And so there is a whole network in your brain that is dedicated just for this. And you can understand why, because it is so, so important. And when you are in that stage of life, so to speak, what we call as puberty, and when you are entering that phase, there are actual changes that happen within the neurons in your brain and new connections start forming so that you start seeing the world differently. So a four-year-old kid will have attention on all sorts of things the chocolates and uh, you know the games and what their what their parents got them for their birthday and all that but an 18 year old will have a large part of his attention diverted towards whatever sex that he or she is attracted to and that is because the networks have changed and as soon as they identify someone, they see a pattern, and they're always looking, whether or not they know it. Their brain is always looking for that pattern that will click. When they find that pattern, that ancient machinery sort of falls into place, and then it kickstarts that whole chain reaction.
0: And what and like what happens to, like when you do find that person physically? How do you know you're in love? Yeah, like when that whole process that. in your brain starts like acting up?
2: Are you ready to hear some technical terms? Yes.
0: Like, you know, like butterflies in your stomach. Like, what are all those
2: things? Right. So there is a hormone in the brain called as norepinephrine. If you tap on your neck, what you call the nape of your neck, so just below your hairline, where your hairline ends, if you tap there, what you're tapping is the brainstem. And this is the most primitive part of the brain. This is where all your ancient... Uh, centers are so where your heartbeats are controlled where your breathing is controlled so if that goes everything goes so that is where everything starts from and norepinephrine is a hormone that is secreted from that part from the brainstem so that's how important it is and the function of norepinephrine is to make you alert so when you wake up your norepinephrine is going up And if you have an exam that day and you're walking towards your exam, your norepinephrine is shooting up, up, up. And when you sit for your vaiva, your norepinephrine is through the roof.
0: You're like fainting, anxiety, like the heart, all of it. Like I feel very pukish.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is all the things you go through when you find someone that you find really, really attractive.
0: Oh my God. Why do we have to fall in love? Why is this so painful? Oh my God. Right, it's all biology. That explains it. We have no control over how our body reacts when we find someone we're attracted to. So if I see cute guy A, let's call him Rupesh, and I begin to lose the ability to speak in proper sentences, I start sweating, spontaneously crying, and then awkwardly back away nice and slow till I'm out the door. That's normal human interaction, right? Right? We all do that, right? Right. I'm kidding, guys. That's not me at all. I'm way more smooth and sophisticated. I mean, I'm the Beyonce here, Rahul. I mean, sorry, Rupesh. Although there have been quite a few Rahuls in my time. Anyway, I still wanted to know if I'm biologically predetermined to fall for a certain kind of person. You know, like having a type we all have these base instincts in our body when it comes to falling in love, a lot of which we're unaware of. Is this the reason we have a type that we go for? Or do external factors like culture, society play a big role?
2: It's super fascinating because what will trigger that first spark? What will activate that machinery? In other words, who will you find attractive? is very dependent on the society you live in. Because generally... So no one is inherently attractive or unattractive. They just are. But we attach all these patterns, right? So there are certain societies where tall is beautiful. There are certain societies where short is beautiful. Small feet, large feet, all of these. These are all constructs. People just are the way they are. But then we say that, hey, this is beautiful. This is not. Uh, This is attractive. This is not. And in general, if you are brought up in a particular culture, then your brain, when so when a kid is born, what is attractive, what is not, is not that deeply coded. So society decides that and the the culture that you're exposed to decides that. So every culture will have its own standards of beauty that may not work in another culture. So what triggers that machinery is society, but then once it's triggered, everything is biological. So when we think
0: about the kinds of things we associate with romance, we think about a box of chocolates or flowers or the sweet sounds of a harp. We understand that as being romantic. How much of it is marketing and media? Is it possible that romance is a construct?
2: Our understanding of romance is a construct, but there is definitely biological changes that happen in your body when you are exposed to a pattern that you're attracted to which is not a very romantic way of saying falling in love, but then that is what it is.
0: <laughs> no, totally. This is, it's nice to hear it in different words and jargon and languages.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll make for a great Valentine's Day card. You, know, you are a pattern that my brain <laughs> finds it.
0: It's so nice. It feels so much more real than I am falling in love with you. So I has, my <laughs> I mean, brain's picked up and it's triggered it's my true. biological machinery <laughs> to mate with I you. Do. it's nice to see and understand romance from this perspective as well i think it's really important when we think about biology it's simple certain chemicals and reactions take place in our body then we fall in love but we know it's not that simple and it's definitely not that easy right even if your body is giving you all these signs your head is the one in charge And it's this maze of emotions, personal histories, bias, expectations, pressures, ego, belief. Like I recently started seeing a guy and I thought we were dating after a point because of the way we were interacting. He didn't think we were dating. He said, I never said we were dating. And I said, I never said we were not dating. So long story short, we are dating, according to me. See, it's all so confusing, which is why I had a chat with writer and clinical psychologist Dr. Amrita Narayanan to understand how romance works on the mind. I wanted to ask you a personal question, which is, what do you, what does romance mean to you? For me, romance is essentially about the
3: imagination and uh, how your imagination maps onto other people. So when you're asking whether romance is dead, I think essentially for me, you're asking whether the imagination is dead and if sex um, has become a matter of body mechanics. So I think of sex as a body version of the imagination's wishes and
0: romance is just pure imagination. You're like, just be imaginative and you can be romantic. (laughs) So I want to ask you in terms of like the work you've been doing around romance and sex and how have the ways in which Indians find love or a partner changed throughout history or has it? Well, you know, there
3: wasn't any technological means of finding love and a partner some even 100 years ago. So I think the main thing that has changed is the mechanism of meeting. Today, the mechanism of meeting has really democratized in many ways. It's opened up and uh, the way you meet people outstrips your geography or your relationship circles because you can be meeting people online. But if you think about ancient Indian uh, love and romance, from whatever I have read and studied, it seems to me that the, the two things that are different today than in antiquity is that first the idea of what is beautiful and sexy uh, seems to have really diversified and if you look at ancient literature the men are always you know styled in language of power and royalty and the women are styled in the language of fragility innocence modesty and there's certainly an idea that comes from ancient indian erotic literature that men and women look and behave in a certain way and that is what is beautiful and attractive. Um, I think we've uh, really diversified that. In a country like India where family structures and relationships um, are so important to people, the access to choice uh, invariably creates some divergence between what the family espouses and what the individual wants. And uh, a lot more conversation therefore needs to be had in order to have both, which is what most people want, I think. This question of how to get both is something that people are grappling with much more than they are used to. But, but I think that it's better to grapple with it rather than to follow the old model was that you can have um, family and attachment, and, but it's conditional to following their imagination of what romance and sex is all about. Now, the idea is that you have a lot of options uh, in terms of your imagination and your idea of sex and romance, but you have to have a lot of conversations with your family in order to work this all out and have both.
0: Yes, having those conversations is so important. But then how does a young person navigate love and romance in our current society?
3: Well, as I said, because I think that romance has to do with the imagination and with how you imagine love, closeness and often sex, um, I think it continues to be very important. What we're seeing, I think it's, that is a little bit different, is that there's a decoupling of sex and romance, um, I think perhaps more than before, and people are more able to do that to separate the sex they're having from their imagination and idea of romance.
0: There is one part of romance that is cute, fuzzy, adorable, and squishy. And then the other part, the sexy part, that's wrapped up in morality, shame, vulnerability, and risk. Interestingly, Dr. Amrita has written about female desire in a book called Parrots of Desire, an anthology of 3,000 years of Indian erotica, which is why she seemed to be the right person to talk about our understanding of sex in the sphere of romance. I feel like there's a discrepancy between our history and now. I don't know if there is, but from what I've been told and what I've seen, people keep saying that we've become more and more conservative and sanskari. And do you think that's the case, according to your research?
3: Yeah, well, there's no one India or one case, of course.
0: Yes. Yeah.
3: So, and I think India is simultaneously very conservative and very liberal in different ways. But um, I think what you're referring to is um, this notion that there was a time period in Indian history, fourth, fifth century, uh, Kama Sutra, Koka Gata Saptasai, a period in which there was a flowering of erotic literature as well as potentially, as far as we know, uh, sexuality and eros uh, that isn't present in modernity, in Indian modernity. I think that that era was the anomaly and it uh, was a specific era. It was, it sounds just wonderful. and uh, But um, I think that the, the the notion of the modern family was anxiety provoking. And uh, part of what happened during that process was uh, getting very rigid about uh, reproductive sex, about heterosexuality, and uh, what you're calling morality, which is a bit of both of those, particularly as uh, particularly upon women. Right.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's so much shame and guilt around being able to express love, uh, whether it's physically or even like emotionally or mentally. It's something I struggled with my whole life. It's not my whole life, I got, like 10 years ago, I, I dealt with it. But the amount of shame I felt after having sex the first time I had sex with someone I really really loved, you know, my yeah. first boyfriend. And why do you um, think that
3: was, the shame?
0: Because I was told you have to wait for marriage, it's an Uh immoral Mm -hmm. act, it's dirty if you do it with like too many people, you know, all those
3: connotations that come with Yeah, yeah. So I think that this anti-pleasure idea and that um, sex is a matter of family, loyalty, reproduction, marriage, rather than a matter of pleasure, I think that has very much been a continuous thread in Indian history, you know, from second century laws of Manu. Um, there's, I, I would say, and I'd say this in my book as well, that there's an argument that's going on constantly in Indian society as to whether sexuality should be the preserve of pleasure or whether sexuality should be controlled and that what is really important is uh, aesthetic values and that sexuality should be reduced to a minimum in order to reproduce and to you know, take, take the race and to take marriage forward.
0: I want to know, do you think the anxiety and pressure has around relationships and romance, do you think it's changed over the years and marriage, yeah. actually? Mm.
3: I think people take marriage and relationships less for granted than they once did, because the rules about keeping those in place have changed in some respects.
0: That's a good thing.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing, but it is anxiety provoking because we look upon relationships and marriage for more than one thing. and. One of those, the most important one, is continuity and stability. Uh, The second one is love and romance and sexuality. And so if it's no longer giving continuity and stability, for sure, and if love and romance are disrupting the possibility of continuity and stability, that's certainly anxiety-provoking.
0: I asked neurologist Siddharth Warya the same thing do you think that the anxiety or pressure on relationships and marriage has changed for young people?
2: It's a a very interesting question because our idea of marriage has really gone 180 degrees, hasn't it, in the last 50, 60 years, 100 years. So definitely there is more choice and generally more choice equals more anxiety. So... When you give somebody a choice between two things, they are less anxious. And if you tell them to choose between 100 things, they go into a panic. If the idea is to marry versus not marry, that's an easier decision. But if the idea is to decide if you are, uh, if you are into a traditional marriage, if you're into polyamory, polygamy, open relationship, uh, so, 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 like the more you split, it's great. On the one hand, I'm, I'm totally in support of people defining themselves more, more and more clearly. But there's no doubt that that discovery is a hard process. Finding out amongst all these choices, who where do you fit in is a hard process. And of course, a lot of people really enjoy it. And I'm sure it's really rewarding when you reach there. But a lot of people might not enjoy it. They may find it, you know, it's too much anxiety, too much of pressure. And also there's <laughs> there is the whole concept of FOMO and you feel like, oh, what is the other side doing? What is uh, What if I should try that? Which is, um, there's a concept in psychology called the paradox of choice. So you give somebody chocolate versus vanilla and most people pick one and they're very happy. But then nobody comes out of Baskin-Robbins completely satisfied if they're not allowed to try everything and they just have to pick one. And suppose you're not allowed to, taste anyone. Just pick one and go. You will always leave with a sense of, yeah, what if that also looked good, you know? So it's interesting that what what really makes you happy? So you can see that there's so much that
0: goes on in our body and mind that make up all the things we feel and think while falling in love. It's a complex process of brainwaves, hormones, desire, imagination, and ice cream. So are we doomed to always react to love and relationships in this terrifying way? I went back to Cyrus Brocha to understand how people have coped and whether anything has changed across the years. So you've been giving advice to so many people for decades now, and I wanted to know what do you think of the state of love and relationships in this day and age.
1: There's good and there's bad. The the good is, but the same thing is good and bad, which is the invasiveness of the internet, right? Because you put everything out there, so we all know what Kani said from the morning to the night, uh, where she went, how tight her jeans are, or not. You know, who who the idiots in the background are, who may or may not be the guy she's dating. So there's just too much. The privacy factor is gone. And then before you meet the person, you go and research. And don't lie. Everybody researches. You don't just research people you're going to work with. You always research. You couldn't research before. In the 80s, I meet a girl in St. Xavier's College. I like her. I go and ask my friend Neeraj, can you introduce me to her? She, you know, you know her. And that's how we started. It was just very primitive. And I couldn't, I had to unravel the present and she had to unravel her present on her own. There was no. Let's just Google search. Let's find out. Oh, he's got two wives. Oh, he's a communist. Oh, he's a midget. Oh, he doesn't have a penis. You know, all this, you, I mean, that's not fair. Because then what are you left with? People check, 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 check. I mean, are you buying potatoes at the end of the day? Of course, all men are potatoes at the end of the day. But you know, so I, I think that's both good and bad. You have that information which scares you of the person, and then again, you know, because information, in the end is always going to be bad. No one is going to be Mother Teresa. I mean, if poor Mother Teresa got a blog going in the, you know heyday. Who knows? I mean, I, and listen, I'm Catholic, so don't come after me. But, you know, so I'm just saying that it's just it's amazing how invasive this thing can be. And then you're prejudiced already, even though you're in love with her. How can that be? Uh, because she's I love dogs and you hate dogs. I love walks on the beach and you hate walking as a concept. I mean, everyone's got their own little, uh, you know, I won't call them fetishes, reverse fetishes, issues, problems, whatever. So all that is out there. So I always try to tell them when it's schools and colleges, there's so many common things. Why is it difficult? You just start discussing a teacher you both don't like. You just start discussing the next class. You just start discussing the holiday. Or, or one kid who talks too much. There must be an idiot Cyrus-like person in your class who won't shut up. You just, you just have of bond over something small and see if that bonding happens. That little seed where you just, you know, I, I mean, like in the movies, there is the occasion when you just say hello or you drop a book and someone picks it up. That could happen too. But don't wait for that. There's so many... Guys out there who won't take that opportunity, where they have access to uh, the other, okay, both ways. You have access to the gender of preference or whatever. And you have to go out there and have a conversation which is casual. Why would you want to not have what is called a casual conversation, normalcy? Because all the rest will follow if it, if it is to follow. But you can't go and say, I like you so much. I love you. Or just stare at them, you know, non-stop. I mean, chances are that's, that's just going to end badly. But having said that, there are times when someone holds their eyes and you hold their, your eyes and you know, just like in the movies or in the songs, you know, I mean, it's not like that doesn't happen. It does. But I think we Indian men really don't read the signs properly because we're always interested in getting the position, as in getting the, the victory, so to speak. So we've reached the end point without the first step. The first step is just not in our head.
0: We've now understood the various parts of us and how romance affects our mind, our body and heart. So it's finally time to ask the question that continues to haunt me Is romance dead or will love find a way?
3: Oh, not at all. I don't think romance is dead at all. I think the imagination is alive and well and igniting people's um, sexual and romantic lives. Um, and I feel very hopeful. Uh, particularly in India, uh, that the different kinds of structures that are coming into place uh, to give homes to people's romantic imaginations um, are really, really helpful. We very much need modern communities um, that offer some uh, support and replacement uh, for the ancient communities that uh, restricted the imagination and the romantic imagination.
2: When you say, is a romance dead? There is still a memory of it, right? So it never goes away completely. It always stays in some form.
1: Romance is never dead. If romance is... We must all be romantics and believe in romance. Right till our dying day. Even if you know, our organs don't perform and our hearts are failing and everything else. We have to believe in love. I, anybody who's been in love will defend this till their dying breath. There is no better feeling. You're at your best, your human capability, your your zest for life, your joy, the all this comes out when you're in love. For both, for everyone, whoever, let's not talk about who's involved, what age or gender, that's all, no consequence. It's just that you're at your best. So I'm just saying that if a human being is going to be at their best, and we could keep that for a longer period of time, the world would be a better place. A lot of this anger, why is all people so, all the wars come out of frustration, I want to acquire more territory, why? If you found the most beautiful girl in the world, you wouldn't waste your time trying to take another person's land or, you know, fight over some land from 400 years ago and say who built what there and now let's go back in time and, you know, figure that out. You'll be holding a hand and enjoying the summer breeze and running up the meadows and hills. This is if you're in Europe, in India, whatever, you know, back alley of some dirty road. But the point is, you know, you, that's, that'll, be, uh, that'll be paramount. Not this stupidity and this this anger and hatred, mostly from men who are very frustrated and unha- unhappy and it gets translated and diluted and projected finally into what they do with their lives. So I'm a big fan of love. Love would solve a lot of problems. If you give up on romance, you're a cynic. And if you're a cynic, then the next step is, you know what? Terrorism? Banking? I mean, these are the worst jobs ever.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Is Romance Dead by Bumble India. Come back next week as we continue our quest to explore the things we consider romantic. Until then, be kind to yourself and know that you deserve love no matter what. Download Bumble now and make the first move. I'm Keneesh Sirka. This is a podcast series by Bumble. Executive producers Elixir Nahar and Georgie Koop. Directed by Mae Thomas. Produced by Made in India.